differences between us that are sometimes visible and sometimes not, but which we often use to immediately make boundaries between us or set people apart. That needs to change. And I think in the autism communities, this is changing much on the basis of autistic people, more strongly speaking and showing that their ways of interacting are actually very sensitive in their own ways. So non-autistic people are increasingly called upon to think, ah, actually this different way of interacting is equally valid and maybe I need to adjust, rather than make the autistic person assimilate to neurotypical ways of doing things. Welcome to Mind and Life. I'm Wendy Hassenkamp. My guest today is philosopher and cognitive scientist Hannah de Jaeger. Hannah is a leading thinker in the inactive approach to cognition, which we've talked about in several previous episodes, and she's been working to extend those theories into the social domain to understand how we think, work, and play together. Her ideas lift up how social interaction is central to the way our minds work. And I think through this, she's giving us another lens on interconnection. Hannah is such a careful and clear thinker, and I love how she doesn't shy away from nuance. In fact, she embraces it. She highlights how relationships are naturally full of tensions and leans into that complexity to give us a better understanding of how we can know and love one another more fully and communicate across differences. She's also moving her work beyond theory and into some really important applications, including neurodiversity and autism, which we get into more in today's show. If you're interested in Hannah's work, please check the show notes. There's lots there, including some excellent lectures that dive deeper into her ideas. And if you'd like to learn more about some of the broader concepts in this conversation, you might enjoy checking out some past episodes, like with Evan Thompson, Amy Cohen-Varela, Roshi Joan-Halifax, and Andreas Ropsdorf. Okay, if you can, settle in somewhere cozy and listen to this one. I loved this conversation. I found it really rich. I hope you do too. I'm so happy to share with you, Hannah de Jaeger. Well, it's my great pleasure to welcome Hannah Diego to the show. Hannah, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. I'm really glad to be here. So I've been diving into your work, and I'm very excited to chat about a lot of these different aspects. You are a philosopher of cognitive science. But first, I'd love to hear a little bit about how you got into doing this work. You know, what drew you to philosophy and the cognitive science area. And then I know your work has been really influenced by Francisco Varela as well. And so maybe mm -hmm. how, how you came across all that. Yeah. Um, so it starts quite early. I think as a young child, I was interested in thinking what thinking is and um, how people behave and how people do what they do. Um, and I remember, you know, as a young girl, in the car with my parents, mainly in the car somehow, sort of having these reflections with them. Like, they would also tell me um, later on that I would lean forward in between their seats <laughs> in the car and, and go, do you know what I think? And then I would start a story or, or some <laughs> thought, and then we would have a reflection together about it. And it wasn't just thinking about things, but also thinking about thinking. Yeah. And that, I think that was already there from a very young age. And my dad was a psychologist and my mom, she taught literacy to children. 
who didn't have literacy. Like in Belgium, it's called alphabetizing. So it's teaching yeah, children to read who don't have access to it. And also even adults. She did that with adults as well. And um, both my parents at some point when I was a young child specialized in autism, working with autistic people. Oh, okay. Yeah. And my dad, um, as a psychologist, also when I was a young child, specialized in systemic psychotherapy. And so he went to an academy in Antwerp um, two days a week, um, which was quite an event because it was a bit far away. And so he went there and that was, you know, he was away for the long day from home. And this academy is called the Interaction Academy, the Interaxia Academy. Um, and they taught the work of Francisco Varela and Umberto Maturana there. And so he brought these ideas home. Oh, and wow. he was very enthusiastic about it. And, you know, we talked about systemic things since I was a kid over dinner, you know. Yeah. And also about, yeah, what, what the autistic children in their care did. And, you know, when they were talking about the people that they were working with, it was always the approach was to understand it from the point of view of the person. Or, you know, if the child did some strange behavior, supposedly strange behavior, the intention was always, what does that behavior mean for this child? And why is it like that from that perspective, rather than having some kind of preconceived idea of, oh, it's that behavior and it needs to be treated away or something like that? No, it was always, why is that there? And what is the context? What went before? You know, what helps to make it better for the person? And so, yeah, those kinds of conversations were there since I was a young kid. Yeah, wow. Oh, that makes a lot of sense then, how you've yeah. gotten into all of the work that you have. Yeah. So that's interesting that that you were raised already with that perspective of viewing people's behavior from their own side, from mm -hmm. their own experience. And um, I, I've heard you speak about, you know, as a philosopher of cognitive science, which it might be interesting for the audience just to hear what mm -hmm. that actually means. Mm -hmm. Like, I, I'm presuming it means you look at how cognitive science approaches what it does. Yeah. But yeah. And, and so the critiques that, or the, you know, perspective that you see there um, and some of the problems that that can cause. Yeah. Yeah. So when I studied philosophy in Brussels, I, I, my undergrad and well, licensed degree, which is the equivalent to a master, were in philosophy in, Br in Brussels. And uh, in the thesis I wrote there, I already it took the perspective of, as a philosopher, looking at cognitive science. So I looked at artificial intelligence and already also the because I went to that academy where my dad studied. So it, it's not uh -huh. a, an academic academy. It, it, they train psychotherapists. But I went there because they had a copy of the Tree of Knowledge, um, Maturana and Vrela's book, um, <laughs> that otherwise I couldn't get a copy of. It wasn't in the university library. So I went there to look at that. And that was in my thesis, and also autistic thinking already was in my thesis there as well. So that, yeah, philosophy of cognitive science is thinking as a philosopher about, for instance, what artificial intelligence can tell us about thinking and about behaving and about intelligence. Um, yeah, and also really thinking about what it is to be human by, for instance, looking at psychological theories of autism. And there was a tension in a way already between how my father approached this by looking at it from the autistic person's perspective and what the theories were doing, because they were the, the psychological theories of autism were very much imposing their theoretical framework on autism without actually looking at autistic people as they were behaving, what they were doing, 
you know, in real life. So I noticed, for instance, one thing that autistic people tend to do, but I, I put a little note on my wall, rhythmic behavior. So this rocking in a chair, for instance, or looking through their hands while they are flapping at something looked to me like rhythmic behavior, but I didn't really find it in the theories. And so I was wondering about how does that go together, these psychological theories, which are all about what's going on in the head and how the brain is calculating things, to say it very quickly, and how that goes together with autistic people in real life. You know, there's there were tensions and questions there, and so those I started to investigate in my PhD at the University of Sussex. So that was kind of the kernel or the basis of my PhD research. Yeah, I, I want to get to all of your perspectives on autism and your work now that, that you're doing uh, with the autistic community. But first, maybe it would help uh, to kind of build a number of different theories that, mm. that your work is based on and that you've developed. Um, does it make sense to, to start with an active theory mm -hmm. and kind of Varela's work and um, yeah. sense making as a concept? I think that could be helpful for the audience to hear more yeah. about. So, yeah, my work starts in sense-making in some sense. <laughs> because, yeah, so at Sussex, we looked a lot of, at embodied theories in general. So not just how the brain is um, computing things about the world, but rather how we as whole bodies move around in the world and how our bodies understand things. So when I, for instance, take my cup of tea here in front of me to drink from it, that is a different uh, intentionality. And... I move differently than if I want to put the cup of tea aside because I want to start writing something in my notepad that's in front of it or something like that. And that different intentionality in my bodily movement is also visible if you were to be able to see it. You would see that from the beginning, even if maybe you don't realize it, but your body would react to it in the way you understand it bodily from the first moment. And so that bodily moving is actually how we understand the world. That, that is something our body does more than our brain. And of course, our brain is part of that, but it's mainly also in, our, in the kinetics of how we move. The meaning is already there. Mm -hmm. And so that was important um, to begin with. But then sense-making, the concept of sense-making as developed by Varela and Evan Thompson and Ezekiel Di Paolo is how that is the case because we are engaged with the things that we do and see and find in the world out of a necessity of maintaining our own living organization as human beings. And so that makes things relevant for us in the world. So the cup of tea is relevant when I am thirsty. And then I attend to it in this particular way for getting a drink from it. And that really runs through my whole way of moving with it. And that is all to do with my self-maintaining at this metabolic level of needing some food or, or nutrition or something like that. So sense-making, because of that necessity and how we maintain ourselves as living beings, gives a perspective on the world of things that are relevant, that are good or to be avoided for our self-maintenance. And we don't only do that metabolically, but also um, in sensory motor terms. So I like to move a lot, I guess, when I speak, maybe not so much as other people, but <laughs> I do notice that I like to use my hands. And so these are sensory motor self-maintenances as well. So we have habits of moving, um, which Ezekiel has written about in his book, Sensory Motor Life, where we maintain ways of moving also sensory motorically that are then difficult to change. So it's a kind of autonomous organization as well that self-maintains. And we also do that socially. 
um, the self-maintenance. Uh, and then in the social realm, we maintain identity. So the way I speak here is different than when I speak to my sister or to my husband. We maintain different kinds of linguistic and social identities for which we do certain things. We speak in certain ways here, different than in other contexts. And that's all related to that sense-making and self-maintenance and what is relevant to us and how we do things. Um, so that self-maintenance runs through all of our ways of behaving and all of our cognition. And that's what sense-making is. Yeah. Is it also, sometimes I get stuck on the word sense or yeah. like in the terms of making sense yeah. of the world. Yeah. So that, <laughs> I was going to say that totally makes sense what you just <laughs> said about movement and maintaining our, um, you know, our organism and our self-organization and these different roles and identities and ways that we do that in different contexts. And is there also a piece that then all of that behavior and I guess does perception also play in there about how we perceive the world? And and that's probably an iterative system, right? Mm -hmm. Depending on our goals and all of that. I'm thinking about the way that our minds or mind-body systems are trying to construct like a model of the world is sometimes how it's talked about in cognitive science or is that part of the making sense of like having a kind of a construct that then we can use to understand the world and how we engage with it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, let me try to answer all the different parts of it because there's a lot in the question. Okay. Yeah. So you started with asking about sense, like making sense in the ordinary language kind of way in which we use it. So something makes sense, indeed, I think you're right, that it makes sense when it fits a model that we have or, or a thought or a template or a previous understanding that we already have. But so that's the very high level, one very high level form of making sense of something. But it goes all the way back to sense. And sense is contains both our senses and, you know, tasting, smelling, hearing, seeing, even our touch, sense, and maybe also other senses. I think our bodies are sensitive in different ways than those five senses as well. Mm -hmm. But that word sense connects that, those bodily sensitivities, to these very high-level human forms of sense-making, making sense of things. And that whole um, spectrum, or spectrum is maybe a little bit too dry. It's like, it's a very rich tapestry of, of the way our body connects to the world and so this our senses and how we relate through our senses to the world and this high level sense making are completely connected and they run through each other for human beings but um, one element in the inactive approach as well is that sense for you know even minimal living beings like I see a beautiful picture of a tree behind you Trees and plants are also sensitive to the world. And so this sense, um, self-organization sense for minimal living beings is already there. But then to get to human level sense making or ma something making sense and how that relates to our, maybe our model of the world or a pre-understanding that we have of the world, you know, a lot happens in between that low level sense making. I actually don't like to speak about it like that because it's so complex and, and rich already. But yeah, I mean, yeah, the connection between those two ends, in a way, are, is is very rich and full. Um, and as human beings, and also animals do that, I think, have lots of experiences that form sort of grooves through which they are 
habituated to interact or they are used to interacting with the world. And so Ezekiel called this grooves one time or a long time ago, but it's an interesting way to speak about it, that the way we often interact with the world makes it so that certain things become used to us interacting in that way. I think what happens is that we often interact with things again and again and again. Of course, we, we do things habitually. or So there are these often occurring similar dynamics of interacting with the world and also often occurring similar experiences that we have. And they're always different because, of course, the world never repeats itself, but they're also similar enough so that we get used to ways of interacting and then that when we do something again that we have done before and it doesn't quite fit, then you can speak about it in terms of a model that we have. But I would say it's more like um, an experience that we have or, or um, a pattern that's usual for us either can continue as it always happens and then it fits the model in a way or it is different this time and then we have to adjust what we thought about it before and so the, in a way the model doesn't fit but it also means we now have to move differently on all these different levels with this thing that we are trying to understand. So you've contributed a lot to this theory and bringing it to another level of sense making, which is um, you call participatory sense making. So involving more of an interaction between people. Mm -hmm. Do you want to give kind of an overview of how that works? Yes. So participatory sense making starts from two pillars. I mean, it's part of my PhD thesis, but it came out a lot also out of my work with Ezekiel Di Paolo. So participatory sense making is like in contrast to previous theories of social cognition, which looked at how we individually figure out what another person is doing and try to explain and predict their behavior. Participatory sense-making looks at intersubjectivity, so how we make meaning together in the widest possible sense in order to try to capture all of what we do socially with each other, not so much to be um, like a, an extremely wide-ranging theory or something like that, but to make sure that we have enough of a view of all of the phenomenon to capture really what's going on at the levels of experience and cognition and all of those things. But the two basic pillars of participatory sense-making, if you like, the equally important starting points are first that we are these sense-makers who interact with the world in terms of what we need and the constraints that we have on the basis of our bodies as self-organizing systems. So we engage with concern for the world. And the other pillar is that interactions. So when we do something together, anything, whether it's gardening or, or cooking something or dancing or having a conversation, an emergent process happens between us and a dance kind of emerges between us. And that dance itself also has a certain autonomy or a life of its own mm. and can pull us in in certain ways or push us out in certain ways. So it, it has its own kind of effectiveness in how we interact with each other and how we understand each other. So it's not just this one sense maker over against another one and we meet each other and we are different. That is already very complex. But then also what happens in between us does things with each of us. You know, we, we become participants in an interactive process. And that's also something that we contend with in a way. You know, it can lead to 
particular tensions, for instance, like some interaction processes, maybe to illustrate it, um, if you have like an ongoing difficulty with, with a family member, for instance, from a long history, it happens perhaps that even if you decide this time for Christmas or Thanksgiving dinner not to fight, this pattern that you're in for so long may just take over, even against your individual intentions, even if both of you know that individually this time you said, really, it's not going to happen, still the interactive pattern can be so strong that it pulls you up into this well-known dynamic, mm. you know, and this illustrates the power of these interactive dynamics. And sometimes it's that strong, but I think in general, it's always playing a role, not always that strong, but it's always also influencing us. And so these are the basic elements of participatory sense-making theory. Yeah, thank you. That's a really helpful example, you know, about interpersonal dynamics or someone that you have struggles with. Because to me, at least, it really shows like when you both are kind of sucked back into that dynamic, it's not necessarily anything that's happening inside either one of the two people separately. Mm -hmm. It's the dynamic between them. So I see what you mean by like that dynamic has its own, is a life of its own in a way. Yeah. It's really interesting yeah. to think about that way. Yeah, and I think it, it, it is, you know, sometimes we are often not aware of it. So one of the things I want to do with participatory sense-making is to help people understand that and maybe first of all see that that's going on. Um, and then to understand it, we have lots of conceptual ways of helping people understand that. And then also, I think experientially, it's something that we can relate to. So participatory sense-making is in a way, you know, a scientific way to to capture that. But also, I'm interested now in going into the world and, and seeing how that can make a difference to people's lives as well. Yeah. Yeah. I know you have some examples of how you've been applying this in, in different settings. Yeah. Do you want to share some of those? Yeah. Um, since the beginning of doing this work and since my childhood, as I said, I, I was involved with autistic children and autistic people. They were in my life for a long time. So especially in relation to autistic people, this plays out a lot because people have such different ways of coordinating with themselves and also coordinating with other people. And autistic people, I think, have some kind of bodily differences in um, their own rhythms of moving and interacting from neurotypical or allistic people, non-autistic people. Um, and so this sometimes clashes mm -hmm. in terms of these different rhythms of moving and then what interaction processes do or cannot do with us. And so, yeah, interacting with autistic people and understanding autism has been for a long time, one way of, of, you know, figuring this out in the real world, so to speak, you know, <laughs> from academia, Dutch, that looks like the real world. But now I think <laughs> they are much more closely interlocking. In recent years, more and more autistic people and autistic researchers are not satisfied anymore with being determined by cognitivist theories, which set them apart as socially incapable. You know, they couldn't do social cognition as the theories prescribed it. But now more and more autistic people are speaking and part of the, the academic and the research participation and making theories and designing research and showing that their ways of interacting are actually very sensitive in their own ways. And so now we have to contend with that, I think. But it also becomes easier to bridge gaps between allistic or non-autistic understanding and autistic understanding 
if we can listen better to each other and realize that differences are going in both directions. So non-autistic people are increasingly called upon to think, ah, actually this different way of interacting is an equally valid way of interacting and maybe I need to adjust rather than make the autistic person assimilate to neurotypical ways of doing things. And as I speak, I realize that I'm making this big distinction as if we are so different, but I, I actually don't really think we are that different. And there are big differences and at the same time not, I think. Yeah, I appreciate that. Um, it speaks to kind of the ways that certainly Western science tends to categorize, right? And yes. make these groupings and labels. Um, and then that kind of reminds me, you started to talk about the way that cognitive science determines people in that way of kind of labels and groups and reified constructs around them is making me think of work that you've done around loving and knowing that you've kind of talked about over and under determining people. So how do you use the term loving? Because I know it's pretty specific in the way that you conceive of it. Yeah. So I, at some point I started, you know, through different readings and thinking that, um, started to think that maybe participatory sense-making theory needed some kind of deepening because it can be considered in a way fairly mechanistically if it's only about the dynamics. So the dynamics of self-organization of individuals and the dynamics of self-organization of the interaction and how they relate to each other. So that remain on a kind of mechanistic level in, in science, in scientific terms. But I think one really important element of participatory sense-making and the work it can do is how we experience that. And so these dynamics, we all, I think, know from experience in our loving relationships. So we know in loving relationships that there are tensions between being yourself and being in relation. So you, with friends or with lovers or with parents and children, you have your own existence that you're taking care of, but you can get into existential quandaries with other people when they're wishes go against yours or when the way you relate to each other pulls you in directions that aren't right or you know all kinds of tensions arise in loving relationships all the time and so that's what i think about when i talk about loving and knowing and saying that loving and knowing are the same is on the one hand trying to get an understanding of how we know that is closely related to our bodily experience as human living breathing beings and we know that kind of tension in loving. So it's an experiential invitation in a way to understand what knowing is on the basis of these tensions and these dialectics between yourself and the world. And on the other hand, yeah, I think that conceptually we can get an understanding of what knowing is by understanding these tensions as, again, maybe dynamics between your own self-maintenance and what you encounter as you interact with the world. And then in relation to under and over determining, I think it's really strong this being in the academic research world and also having autistic friends and um, this, you know, intervention or the transgression of each other with these different ways of being that we, we live together and we, and so these, these loving relations are actually always an ongoing balancing in our engagement with each other between under and over determining. So we cannot avoid as human beings making sense of things, as you said earlier. So having these kinds of models or habitual ways of doing things that fit or not what we encounter in the world. Mm -hmm. 
But this kind of model speak, if you like, is sort of static. Like we have a model and then it needs to be, if it bumps into problems, we need to change the model or we need to change our interaction. Mm -hmm. But I think speaking in terms of loving and knowing and of under and over determination is like an invitation to think in terms of ongoing becoming of each of us and the world as we engage with it. And so under and over determination are, is this tension between I have an idea or a way of doing things that I'm used to and I put that on what I encounter. So I determine something that I encounter in a particular way and thereby overdetermine it. And it cannot be itself or the person that I'm with or meeting cannot be itself because I have too much of an idea that I put on them. Mm. And so I overdetermine them. And then this dialogue between us can be um, restricted because of my own overarching idea. So that's something that we cannot avoid doing and it's normal. But as we become aware of it, we can begin to change it or or you know, make it not so strong or recognize it when it's happening and then think about what that tells us about how we are understanding something. And the other direction of that is underdetermining, where, for instance, um, I meet someone or, or I'm, I'm doing something with someone and I have too much respect for them, for instance, and they are doing something that I really don't understand. And I, I just let it completely be to such an extent that I am not even engaging with them anymore. And that's also, of course, a way of not engaging. And eventually, if you take that to its logical conclusion, you would stop interaction or stop engaging with the person. And that is also problematic. But it's also logical that we do that. And I mean, it's something that is normal that we do. But as soon as we become aware of that, and yeah, again, we can do something different with it as we see it. I mean, I, I realize I'm talking in a very abstract way, actually, about these things. Um it's making sense to me. I, I, I like this idea of, you know, projecting. I think we all have that experience, right, where we project our ideas about a person into an interaction and it shapes the interaction yeah. for sure. Or you can just, you know, leave a person be so much that you're not even engaging with them at all. So yeah. I think that's what I hear you saying about this tension between kind of letting be. You've talked about this idea of letting be uh, of a yeah. person. That's interesting to me too. Yes. Yeah, the, the idea of letting be is really about this tension between each of our ongoing becoming and being where it needs to be so that we each can keep becoming as we are, but unavoidably we will have an impact on each other and transgress each other and stop each other from becoming in certain ways just by being ourselves. Mm. But I'm going to try and give an example of this because it's very abstract. <laughs> um, so um, one of the things I've thought about in relation to this and also written about is um, ways of understanding what goes on in the development of dementia. Mm. One of them in, in, in more traditional psychological theories is that um, people living with dementia lose their emotional capacities. And the reason for thinking that is that when they are given tests in which they have to um, categorize pictures of people showing certain emotions, they become less and less able to do that. So they can't do this categorizing of emotions anymore. And then if the conclusion out of that is that they cannot categorize pictures of different emotions, so according to the theory behind it, this is actually losing emotional capacities. 
which I think is an enormous jump, but that's what is behind some uh, psychological theories of emotion that it's about categorizing. Then they are people living with dementia are losing that capacity. And if that is the idea and that's communicated by, for instance, a care worker or a medical doctor to the family of a person with dementia, so the person is losing their emotional capacities on the basis of this categorization trick, if you like, right. that they can't do anymore. But you communicate that to a family and they take it seriously because you're the doctor explaining this, then they think my parent or my sibling or someone, a person I care about, isn't emotionally capable anymore. And so you start treating them like that. Yeah. And so this overdetermination of the person in that way through an, an abstract or a sort of objectivized theory puts the person apart from their family. It has a direct influence in the world. But when you know a person with dementia closely and you are attentive to the emotional relation, it's fully there. The emotional connection can be very strong, even though you cannot express it in words, even though it's not anything to do with categorizing. It's just usually doing things together and noticing the sensitivity of the person, for instance. I mean, this happened to my father. He, he had dementia, early onset dementia. Mm. And one of the things we liked to do was sit in the garden and look at the birds and just enjoy that. And that is something without words, you can see it in each other's faces when you when you make eye contact. And that was a very strong emotional connection, actually. And also he was very sensitive to how the different nurses who came in the house to care for him were treating him. So some of them were more mechanical. Maybe, maybe they were tired or they had had a difficult day or it was just their style. And he noticed that and reacted against it. And that made the interaction yet more difficult between them. So he was fully participating in that and making that happen. But there was one nurse in particular who was very sensitive and very, you know, and they got along well. And those interactions went well, even when they were about difficult things. Mm. So my, my father was fully aware of that and participating in it and making these differences happen as well as he did them. So the idea behind understanding this over and under determining is also that it makes a difference in real life for people. So there's a certain ethics about it as well, I think, in terms of what kinds of theories we make in cognitive science and in philosophy and how they impact everyday life for everyone. that you just brought up ethics um, and I know that's been a, a through line in, in your work that you've been thinking about and part of what you were just saying was making me think a lot about you know social justice movements and prejudices you know that we have mm -hmm. maybe not even on a about a certain individual person but about groups of people right so it can apply in the same ways yeah is there anything you want to share about the implications of these ideas for that space yes um I can really only speak for my interactions uh, in the autistic world mm -hmm. um, because that's where I have experience. But yes, we need to make that change of understanding that we are all ongoingly being ourselves and becoming together. 
and that differences between us that are sometimes visible and sometimes not, but which we often use to immediately make boundaries between us or set people apart and then not question that, that needs to change. Um, of course, obviously, I mean, we all know it and yet it's so difficult. And I think in the autism communities of autistic researchers and this is changing much on the basis of autistic people more strongly speaking and saying, hey, we're here, we, we, we know and think in these ways and listen to us and we, we are fully living beings with our whole views on the world and, and ways of interacting and it's time to listen. Uh, to me, this time to listen is something really important. I'm working here in Canada now, also looking at, for instance, um, relations between First Nations and uh, Canadian government and settlers and all of that. I can't say much about it because I haven't really, you know, I haven't studied it enough and don't have enough experience with actual people. But I think some similar dynamics are going on where if you take participatory sense-making theory seriously, I think because the, the conflict of people not having been heard for so long and there being such a history of violence and mistrust. We are now at a point where it's really time for people who are used to being in dominant positions to listen. Mm. And that's what is being asked by people in dominated histories. They ask it. And yeah, there's a, a point where we have to be silent, actually. Mm. <laughs> for a while. I, I think then later we will go on to a different dynamic. And, you know, interact with each other again. But there is a point also in being silent with each other. And actually, that you know, I, I do some work with an autistic um, social enterprise from the UK. And we facilitate and organize dialogues according to the, the professional dialogue model developed in the US. And in these dialogues that we have between autistic people, family members, friends, um, also researchers... One of the things that comes out from the very act of dialoguing with each other is this importance of silence in the dialogue. So when we are together in a circle, that was for me one of the strongest things that came out, is that for autistic people, it's important, this silence, not just as part of listening, but also as part of processing. So while you're dialoguing, while you're speaking, listening can help everybody understand what's going on. Or silence can help everybody have a different kind of connection with what's going on. That's so interesting, too, because I feel like in so many cultures, silence is like uncomfortable, mm -hmm. you know, and a lot of people feel the need to fill it because it, yeah. it makes them uncomfortable. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I really appreciate that perspective of the need for silence, um, certainly for some people to be able to process more of what's happening and then be able to contribute. Yes, and when people notice that for themselves, it may be that other people who didn't think they needed that also benefit from it. Yeah. yeah. When you were speaking about um, your work with First Nations and Indigenous communities, you know, as another example of, of people who haven't been heard and who've been repressed and who've been overdetermined in many violent ways often. It made me think about, I've heard you talk about um, the social interaction that you're speaking about in participatory sense-making. When it breaks down, it can actually be helpful because it pushes both sides to come to a new understanding. Mm -hmm. 
I'm wondering if that's kind of part of what we're experiencing on a lot of levels um, in the world right now. Yes, I think so. You know, I think all humans are used to conflict and tension in interactions from when we are young. I mean, it's unavoidable. Being born, growing up as a child of parents with siblings, um, being parents of children, you know, conflict and tension and difficulty is unavoidable and it's always there and we live through it. Um, and so it's part of life and it's normal. But at the same time, I think at a societal level, there are all kinds of things at work, like social media, that make this capacity that we have to live through conflict and tension and breakdowns in interaction almost impossible. Like the, mm. the, the complexity and the dynamics of what we know in daily life on a world stage is taken away or reduced to often one person voicing their opinion on Twitter, say, or on any of the other platforms. And one person voices their opinion that is often put in such a way as to invite clashing ideas. And the clashing ideas come and there's no dynamic of interaction. It's just opinion against opinion against opinion against opinion. And it's just slamming each other all the time. Yeah. Um, and this is invited by these systems. And we have no choice but to participate in them in that way because they're set up in that way. So there's a dynamic of interaction that's invited. We're pulled into it. And even though we individually know this isn't right, I want to do it differently, there's a lot more sensitivity and care in what each of us are concerned with. And yet that's impossible to bring out on this world stage in a way or in social media. Yeah. And that's extremely damaging. And we lose this capacity maybe i don't know if it's true but i i suppose that we lose that that these interactive dynamics become reduced it's dangerous also for our everyday social lives but we do have that capacity and we do have that experience and we do have that expertise all of us as human beings we are all intersubjective experts and this this kind of expertise i would like to contribute to giving more trust and confidence to for all of us but so this element of uh, groups of people who have not been heard now speaking up and demanding that others listen and shut up while they listen. And this may take a while, you know, it may take years. Mm -hmm. But then if there's been enough listening and some of the dynamics of trust have been regained and some of the violence is enough out of these interactions, then you know, the dialogue will again pick up and become nuanced. Maybe it's a simplistic take, but I think it's also, you know, trying to do justice to the complexity of it at the same time. Yeah, I really appreciate that perspective. I did have a question that's kind of a little bit back to the level of the individual, but also somehow this interaction idea. So when you're originally talking about the different roles and identities that we all have, it made me think about different forms of psychotherapy, for example, internal family systems is one that kind of views different aspects of yourself as different parts that have different roles and different needs or views or agendas kind of. Yeah. So I was just thinking about a bit of that multiplicity inside of one individual and wondering if you've thought about participatory sense-making or the dynamics of interaction in that way, just within one person. Yes, that's an interesting question, yeah. I can almost only think of that as we interact, 
with other people. So all of our different elements or identities um, or bodies, you know, the way we move around in the world does have that, what you just said. We are different beings within ourselves, but that within ourselves for me is always immediately coming out in the ways we interact in the world. You know, that's where we are these different identities or these different bodies. And in our book, Linguistic Bodies, we also talk about that. And maybe an easy way to explain that or to talk a bit more about it is that when you speak different languages, you relate differently and different ways of being of yourself can come out. So when I speak with my husband, we, he's Canadian and we speak English together. But he also lived in the Netherlands, so he knows Dutch, which is like my uh, mother tongue, but not quite the same, mm -hmm. because my mother tongue is Flemish. But it means that I can sometimes speak in Flemish, and he will understand me, uh -huh. you know, not with all the nuances, but enough so that I can sometimes, when I'm tired, I can speak in Flemish, and he can hear me. And, and something else completely of myself comes out in that way or can come out. And so, and I think many of us have that experience. It doesn't even have to be a different language, like, you know, separate language. It can also just be a way of speaking. Like, it's well known that people have phrases and even invent words together with certain people, like with your sibling, for instance, or versus with a colleague. Yeah, so different ways of being come out. But I, I always see it immediately in interactions with others. I mean, I do think we have we do that internally too. Of course, you know, we think and we write and we do all these individual things as well. But to me, it's always, I mean, it's almost like a picture, like the dynamic runs through my body differently when I speak this language versus that language, or when I'm interacting with you versus when I'm interacting with a friend. And so what is inside us, our different ways of being are invited or come out. I think in interactions. about all of this is making me think about synthesis. Like I think yeah. in some traditions or perspectives, there's an idea that the goal would be to kind of integrate, right? For example, in psychotherapy or something, all of those different aspects of yourself, the idea is that they should be integrated um, or that would be a healthier, yeah. you know, state. And then I'm thinking about that level of integration between people and then I go back to that tension that you spoke so beautifully about, about being yourself and letting another person be themselves and like, yeah. where are the boundaries and, and letting all that happen. And um, yeah. there's probably no clear answer, but I, I just appreciate all of the complexity that you're raising there. Yeah, I think it's an important question about synthesis, because I do think we have many of us share that idea that that's, that's the ideal. Harmony and synthesis are the ideal. And in some sense, I agree that they are. But in another sense, it's unavoidable that that will be broken again. Ongoing becoming and ongoing sense-making, especially also together with other people or in, in interaction with the world, unavoidably breaks up again. Breakdown, as Varela said, is part of 
sense making and is part of how we understand the world and it actually leads us to different places of understanding and actually i would say more which is also something that evan thompson has said before so it's a dialectic rather than synthesis seeking and dialectic is always coming to some kind of understanding that seems joint or connected or, or integrated or harmonious and that leads immediately into new tension and this ongoing dialectic movement never stops and and so what evan thompson has said about that before and which is part of the inactive logic, is that when that stops, when we reach full synthesis or when we reach full harmony and it doesn't break up anymore, is when the system dies. Right. So one way in which that happens is that the system dies, the living system, the interaction, that could happen in synthesis when, when everything stops moving. It could also, of course, happen in full breakdown and full separation. That's also when the system dies. But actually the point is that it keeps going as long as we live. And so synthesis is always something that we can expect to break again. And again, I think we know that in loving relationships, like a marriage can be wonderful, but it's always going to be also difficult, unavoidably. And, and I think it's a lifelong thing that we live with that and we can learn to live better with it and move more smoothly or be more accepting of, of the breakdowns or, or be more creative or be more trusting but it's never going to end. Yeah, that's making me think too in biology, this idea of dynamic equilibrium. Um, I think, yeah. you know, originally there was this idea of homeostasis, which is kind of more like an equilibrium. Yeah. But we realize more and more that actually our biology is also designed to work with um, always these shifts, you know, and that there is there's some state of a general equilibrium, but it's moving and it's shifting. Mm -hmm. And I think that's reflecting too. I love the way you were just speaking about that in relationships also. Indeed, that characterizes biological living beings. That So there's a tension in living self-organization between producing ourselves as material beings and distinguishing ourselves from the world. And that's also a topic in an active thinking that's been written about by several people. So the basic living already contains that tension for an individual, but it's always an individual and interaction. But we produce ourselves and we grow and our material being grows, but we cannot do that in full openness to the world because that would be dangerous and damaging. Mm. And the reaction to that is to close ourselves off, to build a boundary, but we also cannot fully do that because then we cannot take in the things that we need to grow mm. and to keep living. I think that's fascinating about the whole inactive logic and the inactive approach that all these complexities and tensions run through each other and inform each other. And it's not, it's, it's a thing that we conceptually have a framework for that's also in continual development. And it's also something that we know so well in our living being. We live this. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, that's to me endlessly fascinating, actually. Yeah. Yeah, me as well. Um, I'm thinking too, you were speaking about boundaries um, and how we need to, in some ways, isolate ourselves and our organisms from mm -hmm. the world as a protective mechanism, but we need to have some openness Intensive. to be able to get what we need and to exchange. And uh, so much of your work, I feel like, really points to the inherent interconnectedness mm -hmm. of the world, right? And all these different levels. So I'm thinking about um, beyond humans as well. And, uh, you also mentioned earlier animals and plants and their forms of sense-making. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm just thinking a really big picture if 
if you have any thoughts about how all of this integrates kind of more, on a more planetary level or, or yeah. nature level. Yes, there are people who are thinking about that um, and developing work about how this relates to you know our future in relation to the yes. planet that's being so loudly protesting what's going on in a way. I guess we can sense what the planet is doing, what what forests are doing. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think we can also understand interacting with bigger systems yet as a form of participatory sense-making and loving and knowing. I haven't done the theoretical work for that, but it's in development in different places. So I think that's going to be coming soon, actually, that people will speak in those ways or think in those ways about those problems and I think it's important again I think also to build trust that we can intervene we cannot control it in this overdetermining kind of way by having an idea and then putting it on the interaction for instance having a capitalist intervention is to me an overdetermination of that that foregoes what's actually going on in the interactions between humans and and the earth or humans and nature capitalistic solutions have a different goal and a different theoretical framework that clashes perhaps in the wrong ways with the kinds of interactions that we need to better understand. So that would be an overdetermination in my view. But I think also these kinds of theories, this kind of work can help us understand the complexities and where to intervene. But without yeah, having this idea that it, that we will be able to control it from afar by setting ourselves apart from it. And also that we shouldn't underdetermine it. You know, we are not in no relation with nature and we cannot just let it go. Not for ourselves, because then hope is gone, but also not for, you know, I mean, <laughs> for continuing to live on the planet, having no relation with it anymore. This underdetermining is also not an option. Yeah. And I, I'm sure that there is a lot of work actually going on at the moment that is either using these ideas directly or very similar. And, you know, of course, I often feel that we are, you know, redoing what people in the 70s did mm. <laughs> or around the 70s, uh, using the, also these kinds of ideas of complexity. But I think we are also a little bit further now with an active theory than we were then. Yes. It also makes me think of the role of listening, like you were saying, and yes. how important that is uh, in our relationship with nature. Yeah. Yes, and it also relates to, I mean, when I see the tree behind you, it's such a beautiful tree. There's some kind of experience of awe that we can have with nature, which is sort of our spiritual side that also invites this kind of listening. Yes. You know, and of course, people in mind and life community know that very well, but people outside of it maybe aren't so trusting of that. And that's a pity because, I, yeah, that's fully part of all this, I think. Well, Hannah, this has really been so enlightening. And I just, I want to thank you so much for this work. I think it really highlights the importance of philosophy in the work of philosophy. And I appreciate the deep work that you do at that theoretical level and also the ways that you're really working to apply that in the world in meaningful ways. So deep bows to you for all of your work and it's really been lovely to chat thanks for taking the time today yeah thank you for inviting me it's nice to be invited to speak in this way about this work thank you this episode was edited and produced by me and phil walker and music on the show is from blue dot sessions and universal show notes and resources for this and other episodes can be found at podcast.mindandlife.org 
If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and share it with a friend. And if something in this conversation sparked insight for you, let us know. You can send an email or voice memo to podcast at mindandlife.org. Mind and Life is a production of the Mind and Life Institute. Visit us at mindandlife.org, where you can learn more about how we bridge science and contemplative wisdom to foster insight and inspire action towards flourishing. If you value these conversations, please consider supporting the show. You can make a donation at mindandlife.org under support. Any amount is so appreciated and it really helps us create this show. Thank you for listening.